Let's talk attention control. Why is it important and how we can use science to help us enhance it? Only here on the People Scientist Podcast. Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 129, where I aim to arm us with some scientific evidence so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. How are you doing today? How's your day going? Thank you for letting me be a part of your day, and I hope today's episode gives you something interesting to think about. But first, I'd like to take a quick moment to thank Mehdi for buying me some coffee as a thank you for the show via Venmo. It really means a lot to me when any of you take a moment to buy me a coffee or share with me your thoughts on the episode. So thank you for that. Now, today's topic is a highly requested topic, and that is about strategies to help us increase our attention control, our ability to focus on what we want being able to decrease our distractions and decreasing our rumination on negative things. Now, this is an intriguing topic as poor attention control underlies many mood disorders, stress, exhaustion, and low productivity. So today, I plan on giving us all a plethora of scientifically evidence-based suggestions on how we may be able to enhance our attention control. So I'm going to throw a lot of empirical evidence at you today, so buckle in for this big episode. But before we jump into the details of that, let's start off as we always do with a foregone fact, where I share a scientific finding from long ago. Back in February of 1907, scientists created an easily transportable source of oxygen as oxygen tanks were expensive and dangerous to transport. And so scientists found a better way. Oxygen tanks were often used for individuals with respiratory illness, for mountain climbers, scuba divers, etc. But sometimes oxygen was also abused for its awakening and attention-enhancing effects. This new, smaller, transportable source of oxygen was colloquially termed an oxygen cake, as it was a disk of oxylythe that when combined with water would give off pure oxygen. Now, there are reports suggesting that oxylythe cakes were the hottest new cake at parties with people abusing it as a drug. But who knows if that's really the case. Hopefully not, as oxidative stress would be a concern if people were abusing pure oxygen. And we do need oxygen, but only in specific amounts. So now let's get into the core takeaways of today's topic. Attention control is something we all strive for and may not even realize it. Attention control is a skill in which we regulate what we give our attention to. To be able to have sustained focus upon a task or a goal, and to not be distracted, and to not ruminate on unwanted thoughts. Having attentional control is a big component to us being able to be productive in order to avoid mental exhaustion and to have mental well-being. So what are some things that might enhance our skill of attention control? Well, in today's episode, I will be going through a lot of science surrounding different factors, such as listening to music, our work environment, far fascinating scapes to reset our mind, exercising during a task, meditation, our hydration status, magnesium, caffeine, antioxidants, creatine, NAD, B vitamins, medium chain triglycerides, and more. So keep listening on to find out all those details. 
Let's first define attention control and how it impacts us. Attentional control means that we can choose what we give our focus to, to have sustained focus upon a task. Now, human imaging studies have demonstrated that activation of the frontal and parietal cortical areas, mostly in the right hemisphere, are associated with sustained attention performance. Now, the opposite of attention control would be having our attention pulled to things that we don't want to focus upon. Like if we are trying to focus upon a work task, we keep getting distracted by things around us or by intrusive thoughts. Now this can lead to mental exhaustion and low productivity because instead of a task perhaps taking us 20 minutes if we could focus, if our attention keeps getting pulled, that task may now take us 60 minutes if not longer. Lack of attention control is also commonly seen in mood disorders like anxiety and depression. As these disorders can be characterized by ruminating on negative things that we don't want to think about, like stressing or being upset about things in the past or things we cannot control. We'd rather not focus on these negative things, but we are because we don't have strong attention control. So the importance of attention control in mental health and how putting emphasis on improving attentional control in individuals battling with mood disorders like depression was reviewed by Keller and colleagues in the journal Translational Psychiatry in 2019. So again, this concept, this skill of attention control, allows us to choose what we give our attention to, how we can stay productive and keep our focus to our task at hand. So first, we're going to talk about different strategies on how to enhance our attention control, and let's talk about environmental, external things that we can control. Then later on in the episode, I'm going to talk about more internal things like our nutrients and hydration status that can influence our attention and cognition. Now, there are common strategies that some of us might employ to help us focus, but I think learning about when these strategies might be of assistance and how can be useful information to us. For example, let's talk about listening to music while performing a task at hand. Do you ever listen to your music or put your headphones on when you're trying to focus? Well, Kiss and Linnell in the journal Psychological Research last year reported in a clinical trial that listening to music of your preferred musical genre enhanced attentional focus during low-demanding tasks as it reduced the participant's mind from wandering. But it did not reduce external distractions. Like, listening to music may not necessarily prevent the distractions from, like, the people around us, our pet, other noises or cues for food that might be around, etc., so listening to music might help prevent our mind from wandering. It might help drown out the outside noise, but it likely won't prevent non-audio external distractions. So what can we do? Well, this comes down to our work environment. If we feel like we are visually being distracted by the things around us, creating a small enclosed workspace might be of benefit. Like facing the corner of a room. If we can situate a table or a desk in the corner of the room where we are looking at the wall, this might reduce visual distractions. For example, also working in a small cubicle. I remember when I was about 10 years old as a side funny story, when we had creative writing time in English class, I used to create a little fort out of folders on my desk and I would stick my head in that little fort and write. And I remember it always made me feel really relaxed and really able to focus. And I would always get so much done when I worked inside of that little fort. Now, I had a hard time finding clinical trials directly investigating this. In general, studies show that office spaces that have both open layouts and small offices as options to employees is the ideal scenario, as certain projects may require different levels of focus and different levels of interaction with others. But from personal experience and from hearing others' account of their work environment, Sometimes creating a little fort or cubby-like space might really help enhance our ability to focus and shut out the external distractions to allow our visual cues to be just upon the task at hand. Now, there's a fantastic in-depth review by Horn colleagues in the journal Building and Environments in 2016. They highlight eight variables that are important to productivity and ability to focus in work environments. Now, they define productivity as the ratio of output to input. So getting a lot done without a great amount of effort would be highly productive. 
Now, they noted that comfort in a work environment is key. Comfort is defined by an absence of unpleasant sensations and providing positive effects on mental well-being. It is subjective in nature and varies from person to person, and there are different types of comfort in an office. So here are the eight things that they suggest for us to consider in our work environment to make sure that it is comfortable. The first one that they suggest is indoor air quality and ventilation. I'm going to get into this one in just a moment. The other seven of this list is thermal comfort, so not being too hot or too cold, lighting and having daylight, noise and acoustics, so not too noisy or distracting, a good office layout, as I mentioned, to have both an open layout and enclosed office spaces to give options to the employees, biophilia, like plants and access to the outdoors and having views from the window, to have a good look and feel, including pleasant paint colors, comfortable chairs, a good desk height, and privacy if desired, as well to have a good location and amenities to add comfort. Now, I think most of these in this list of eight are self-explanatory, but one that I wanted to get a little bit more in depth about was air quality. I was a bit surprised, but a ton of studies have been conducted on air quality in office buildings and how that can impact employee productivity. Back in the 1980s, a condition called sick building syndrome was coined, and the findings resulted in regulations being created about air quality in buildings and for there to be a low level of pollutants and contaminants in the air. In this review, they talk about how poor air quality can lead people to feeling ill and distracted. So our air quality of our work environment is something important to consider. For example, having an air purifier in the office and even plants might be of assistance, for example. Back in episode 118, I talk about the influence of plants in our work environment. For example, it has been appreciated for some time that indoor plants can improve our air quality by simultaneously taking up carbon dioxide and releasing oxygen through photosynthesis. Plants also have the capability to increase air humidity by water vapor transpired from their leaves. Now let's talk if plants can improve air quality by removing potentially harmful compounds. Indoor air quality is really important to consider as potentially toxic gases and particulate matter can be released by a variety of indoor sources such as furnishings, paints, varnishes, waxes, carpets, solvents, cleaning supplies, office equipment such as copiers and printers, gas stoves, and cigarettes. Air pollutants commonly found in indoor environments include carbon monoxide and dioxide, volatile organic compounds, nitrogen oxides, and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Now, NASA in the 1980s reported that some household plants were able to improve indoor air quality. Scientists have noted that plants and their soil have an ability to simply absorb some of these harmful compounds. Plants also contain microbes and enzymes of their own that may metabolize volatile organic compounds in the air as well. In this paper, the scientists report that work still has to be done to understand which plant species are ideal at improving air quality. However, based on the mechanisms by which plants might be beneficial, I would hypothesize that plants with a larger surface area would be better at absorbing chemical pollutants. Cummings and Waring wrote in the journal Exposure Science and Environmental Epidemiology in 2020 how they reviewed several clinical studies and observed noticeable benefits of indoor plants on having more positive emotions, fewer negative emotions, and reduced physical discomfort. The scientists don't fully comprehend as to how plants might improve mental well-being in an indoor space, just that they know it occurs. Shibata in 2004 conducted a study where they had young individuals conduct a memory task either with the view of a wall, with the view of a magazine rack, or with the view of a beautiful plant. The individuals with the, with the view of the beautiful plant seemed to report better mood during the task and had better attention to the task. So if you want more details on indoor plants and our air quality and our work environment, you can go back to episode 118. Now how about when we have gotten to a point of mental exhaustion? What can we do to reset ourselves? Well, Kaplan in the Journal of Environmental Psychology published back in 1995 that in order to combat this mental exhaustion, that we must have a moment of inhibiting these neural processes. One such way is to remove ourselves from our work environment and to go outside. But just going outside may not be enough. 
Kaplan speculates that our ability to reset and restore our mind in the outdoors has to have certain qualities. One quality is fascination, and the other is distance. The environment must have extent. In other words, be rich enough that it constitutes another world. And it should also be far away from us, like looking out to the river, looking out to a pond, the ocean, the mountains, the fields, the clouds in the sky, views that are far away from us, the opposite of feeling closed in in an office or workspace. For example, this is very applicable to me because even though I go outside in the streets of Manhattan, I still feel very enclosed with all of the buildings on me. So in order for my mind to feel reset, I have to go to the edge of Manhattan where there's a river. So these distant and fascinating outdoor sites are expansive and wondrous, a view that we can dream about and be fascinated with. So firstly, removing ourselves from our workspace and getting outdoors whenever possible is likely to be a benefit. And I personally find that, like when I go for my walk, I choose to go to the river and just take a few moments to stare out into the distance. It could be a placebo effect, but I certainly do feel a resetting of my mind when I can look out to something distant. Okay, how about another external strategy to help us with our attentional control and focus? Let's talk exercise. We have all probably seen in movies or TV shows these big CEO executives that are on the treadmill while working and brainstorming. And in fact, I've tried the same as of late. When I work on the podcast from home, I actually push my stationary bike up to my shelf so they can pedal while I'm reading papers and while drafting the draft for this podcast. I personally find that exercise while working helps to keep me focused. Have you tried something similar? So let's see if there's any clinical data investigating this. Can exercise while working help us to stay focused? Well, let's first talk about the neurobiology of how exercise before or during a task might help us focus. Sustained attention is our ability to maintain focus on relevant details over a long period of time. Now this involves activation of the frontoparietal attention network in our brain which is predominantly regulated through noradrenaline secretion from the locus ceruleus. Now, the locus ceruleus is the major noradrenergic nucleus within the brain and has many excitatory projections to the cerebral cortex. So moderate levels of noradrenaline activate the frontoparietal network, enhancing our sustained attention. And participation in aerobic exercise consistently increases the concentration of plasma noradrenaline in humans. Now, the magnitude of noradrenaline release during exercise is influenced by both the intensity and the duration of exercise. So what duration and intensity is best for our sustained focus? Let's get into that. Radel and colleagues in the journal Physiology and Behavior in 2018 investigated just this. The scientists recruited 12 male cyclists and recorded their attentional focus during four different workout conditions. While at rest, while exercising at a constant, stable, low intensity, meaning steady state, not varying intensity, at a constant, stable, moderate intensity, and at a varied load, moderate intensity. The scientists noted that constant, stable, moderate intensity exercise led to faster responses in a cognitive task, but less accuracy versus at rest and versus low intensity exercise. Moderate intensity exercise at a variable load led to even faster responses with no loss of accuracy. They also measured a surrogate marker, salivary alpha amylase of noradrenaline, and found it was highest during this variable moderate intensity cycling exercise. So the scientists concluded that while doing a task that requires our attentional focus, an overall moderate intensity workout with varying intensity levels seems to lead to faster responses with great accuracy. So while studying or doing some work, perhaps a stationary bike with varying intensity levels, but overall with a moderate intensity, le intensity level, might help us with our sustained focus. There's some work as well to illustrate that high intensity exercise could be beneficial in some, but it could also be too distracting or too tiring. So it appears to be the varying moderate intensity that seems to increase the noradrenaline in our brain the most, which seems to activate our parietal cortical regions of our brain the most, which seems to enhance our sustained focus the most. 
So moderate intensity, variable intensity, of varying intensity seems to be the Goldilocks of enhancing attentional focus. But how about if we don't want to or can't exercise during our task? What if we worked out before? Does it help? Well, Kumar and colleagues in the journal Fatigue, Biomedicine, Health and Behavior in 2015 investigated if exercise and caffeine could help enhance sustained focus. So what the scientists did was recruit 12 athletic individuals and 12 sedentary individuals in their 20s. They had all the participants complete a 20-minute continuous performance task with the purpose of inducing mental exhaustion. So it was a cognitive task that required great attention to detail, error monitoring, and sustained focus. Then the participants either cycled for 30 minutes at moderate intensity, or as the control group, rested for 30 minutes. And they either consumed caffeine or not. And the dose of caffeine was 3 milligrams per kilogram body weight. So how much caffeine is that? Well, for me at my body weight of about 60 kilograms, that would be just under 2 cups of coffee, or around 180 milligrams of caffeine. Then the participants were to complete another cognitive task that required sustained attention after this bout of exercise or rest with or without caffeine. So what did the scientists note? They noted that exercise improved the participants' sustained attention independent of their fitness status. So for example, those who did the 30 minutes of exercise saw about a 20% improvement in their precision, whereas those who rested saw a negligible improvement. So whether an individual was sedentary or athletic, adding in 30 minutes of moderate exercise and going back to a task seemed to enhance their sustained attention. Now, when coupled with caffeine, exercise provided an even greater benefit on the attentional task for accuracy, precision, and mental energy. So what this trial tells us is it is a possible strategy to take a break from our work, do a 30-minute moderate physical activity, have some caffeine, but not too much, as some people can crash and have side effects from too much caffeine. Make sure we also hydrate, which I'm going to talk about later in the episode, and to try to get back to work. This could be an effective strategy to enhance attentional focus. What else can we do to enhance our attentional control? Well, meditation is rooted in the concept of attentional control. And I go into details on how meditation may improve symptoms of mood disorder, sleep quality, and cognition in episode 71. Attention control is exactly the goal of meditation, to train us to focus upon one thing and to be able to not give attention to the distractions. It may be able to enhance concentration on relevant things and avoid focusing on negative or irrelevant things. Meditation is essentially thoughtless awareness. We are aware of our breath. We are aware of our heartbeat. But we are not thinking beyond that. To be able to, be able to do this, it takes great control of our higher order brain regions. In the journal Gerontologist in 2019, scientists pulled together 41 different clinical trials with over 3,500 participants living with mild cognitive impairment. And they had noted improvements in attention span, processing speed, short-term memory, working memory, and executive functioning with meditation. Now, benefits were particularly noted when meditation was practiced for at least three to seven times per week for a duration of 45 to 60 minutes each time. In 2009, in the journal Biological Psychiatry, Rubia reviews the use of meditation for individuals battling with ADHD. They had noted that meditation may improve measures of impulsivity, performance on tasks, to improve their attention span as well. Now, in this review, Rubia notes that not everyone responds to meditation, but many do. Neuroimaging studies show that the anterior cingulate cortex the medial prefrontal cortex and the striatum seem to be involved in meditation. Frontiers in Human Neuroscience in 2012 published a study that compared brain region activity in experienced meditators versus those that have never meditated. They had noted greater connections in the medial prefrontal cortex of the brain in those with a history of meditation. And the medial prefrontal cortex of the brain is essential in attention control and cognition. In the journal Scientific Reports in 2019, the scientists had noted that the structure of the brain changed after eight weeks of daily 45-minute meditation sessions 
which what resulted in a relative increase in cortical thickness in the left precuneus of the brain. They had noted that this increase in the thickness of the precuneus of the brain was correlated with a reduction in depression symptoms. So if we want to train our brain, so to speak, to have better attention control, meditation sessions where we sit and aim our attention at something specific like our breath, our heartbeat, and trying our best to avoid distracting thoughts might be very beneficial as this is rooted in us trying to gain better attentional control. And we certainly see developments in the brain for better attentional control for greater connectivity in brain regions that regulate our attention control through these neuroimaging studies. Okay, so so far we have talked about music, our work environment like our air quality and perhaps even making a small cubicle or fort to eliminate outside distractions. We talked about getting outdoors and looking at a far fascinating scape to reset our mind. We talked about exercise during or before a task. We talked about meditation. Now let's talk about some nut nutritional strategies that have some evidence to support enhancing our attention and cognition. One of the most common reasons for fatigue and an inability to focus is dehydration. And I talk about this back in episode 65. Several clinical trials were conducted where healthy individuals restricted their water intake and had different assessments of their mental performance. In people with mild dehydration, these are the symptoms the scientists noted. A reduced ability to concentrate and an inability to feel alert. They felt tired. They had a headache. They had reduced cognitive function, meaning a reduced ability to think, memorize, make decisions, plan. They had decreased strength and felt weak. And they felt anxious or stressed. Being dehydrated by even just 2% impairs performance in tasks that require attention, psychomotor, and immediate memory skills. Edmonds in 2009 reported that children who had access to water throughout the day reported being less thirsty and performed 10 to 33% better on different visual and attention tasks versus children with no additional access to water. So how much water do we really need? Well, this depends on many things. If we eat quite a bit of sodium, salt, sugar, carbohydrates, these all add to the osmolality of our blood and the need to increase our water intake. If we are sweating from exercise or live in a hot climate or use the sauna often. How muscular we are because our muscle holds on to water. How large we are, the bigger the person, the more water required. If we have kidney insufficiency or kidney failure, we may need to reduce or limit our water intake. But in general, as an average healthy person, it is recommended by the Food and Nutrition Board that adult women drink 2.2 liters of water a day and male adults drink 3 liters of water a day. So that is about 9 cups of water for women and 12 cups of water for men. So that is more than the usual 8 cups of water we hear. And that amount might increase if we're sweating a lot, exercising a lot, or consuming a lot of diuretics. Now I have to ramble on about one thing I don't like, and that is how nutrition boards make recommendations based on being female or male. Because they are assuming that men are bigger and with more muscle than women. But we all know that assumption is not fair and not always true. So I'm going to change the recommendation and say, if you tend to be a muscular person, or if you're taller than five foot seven, perhaps try to get 12 cups of water a day. If you're a smaller person and not very muscular, then perhaps could lean toward nine cups of water per day. This recommendation is made keeping in mind that we are likely to get some additional water from food as well. Our total water recommendation from food and water is 2.7 to 3.7 liters per day. But like I said, if we're exercising a lot, sweating a lot, live in a hot climate, we'll likely need more. It's important that we listen to our body. When we're thirsty, if we feel like we're getting irritable, that we're not able to focus, if we're feeling tired, if we have a headache, this might be our body telling us that we need more water. The reality is that a lot of people don't get this recommended amount. In fact, it is estimated that 19 to 71% of us don't consume enough water, depending on the country surveyed. Now, if we consume caffeine or alcohol, this has the potential to influence our hydration status as well. Whether or not caffeine is a diuretic, meaning if it increases water loss, it's still a bit controversial, but many scientists agree that one milligram of caffeine could cause, on average, 
1.17 milliliters of water loss. So if we drink one cup of coffee, which let's say is about 100 milligrams of caffeine, it could cause about 115 milliliters of water loss. Alcohol, however, is more clearly a diuretic. One gram of alcohol can cause about 10 milliliters of water loss. So we can say that for every can of standard beer, small glass of wine, or two ounces of 30% hard alcohol, that we lose maybe about 150 milliliters of water. And yes, the volume of water in the beer or wine can count towards hydration, but typically we need more water than what is present in our alcoholic beverage. So drinking some water or mixing water with whatever beverage we're consuming is a good suggestion to keep hydrated and to maintain our attentional focus that day or the next day. So in short, if you're feeling tired, mentally exhausted, we can consider our hydration status and drink some water. And in my own personal experience when I felt this way and I drank about two to three cups of water, I did notice an improvement in my symptoms quite rapidly. Okay, next thing, let's talk about nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, or NAD. I talked about this molecule back in episode 97. Now, NAD is made in our body. NAD is like the jack-of-all-trades in our body. It is literally needed for nearly 500 reactions. NAD regulates our energy metabolism, our DNA damage repair, our gene expression, and our stress response. NAD is observed to decline as we age, and with many metabolic conditions like obesity and diabetes. Now, because NAD is important for our energy production and our response to stress, it is possible that it can influence our ability for cognition and sustained focus. So how can we enhance our NAD levels then? We may be able to increase our NAD levels with maintaining a healthy body weight, as reductions in NAD have been noted with obesity. We can reduce our caloric intake, we can try intermittent fasting. We can eat sources of the amino acid tryptophan, food sources of vitamin B3 niacin, like chicken, turkey, pork, nutritional yeast, peanuts, or by taking nicotinamide riboside supplements. Now, homeostatic levels of NAD can be achieved by ingesting 15 milligrams of vitamin B3 niacin daily, which is pretty close to what we should be aiming for. Typically, we want to get around 16 to 18 milligrams of the vitamin niacin per day. Now you can get 15 milligrams of niacin, for example, in six ounces of chicken, six ounces of pork, two cups of mushrooms, or four ounces of peanuts. However, as NAD levels decline with age, the question is how much do we need to ingest and what form is best? And scientists are still trying to figure that out. Trammell in the journal Nature Communications in 2016 reported in rodents and in 12 humans that the supplement nicotinamide riboside in particular may be a very good form of niacin to ingest that can significantly raise NAD levels in the blood. The scientists found that 1,000 milligrams of nicotinamide riboside was the most effective at raising NAD levels in humans. Amounts of nicotinamide riboside in foods is not well known, but it is known that dairy milk and nutritional yeast are thought to contain low amounts. Now, nutritional yeast in particular is something that we can add to our daily routine. It is deactivated yeast, which is really important. We do not want to consume active yeast raw, as that can lead to potentially yeast and growing in our intestines. So nutritional yeast is a good source of B vitamins and also appears to have some amount of nicotinamide riboside. Now, based on animal studies, there are some lifestyle strategies that may increase NAD. These include reducing our calories below what we require, and intermittent fasting. For example, Yang in 2007 reported that a 48-hour fast in mice increased NAD in the mitochondria of mice, which is where energy is produced in our body. In the European Journal Nutrition last year, scientists aimed to determine if nicotinamide riboside supplementation could enhance physical exercise performance in young and older adults. So they recruited 12 young and 12 older men. They received nicotinamide riboside or placebo in a double-blind crossover design study. Before and two hours after supplementation or placebo, blood and urine samples were collected, while physical performance was assessed after the second blood sample collection. The scientists noted that nicotinamide riboside supplementation appeared to be more effective in older versus younger adults. For example, older adults exhibited an improvement in how tired they became from exercising by 
their peak performance increased by 8%. Younger and older adults both saw an improvement in their natural antioxidant system glutathione and reduced measures of oxidative stress. So this was one of the first studies in humans to report that nicotinamide riboside supplementation had a beneficial effect on performance, particularly in older adults, and that's likely because nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, or NAD, seems to reduce with age. Okay, besides NAD, how about another molecule? Let's talk about creatine. And I go into the details about creatine in episode 103. Essentially, anything that can influence our energy production can, in theory, influence our ability to have sustained attention. Because sustained attention takes a great amount of mental energy. So that is why I bring up molecules like NAD and creatine. Creatine is something that we make in our body as well, just like NAD. Now we make it in our liver and kidney from reactions involving amino acids, arginine, glycine, and methionine. But we can also consume creatine from meat or as a dietary supplement. One of the major roles of creatine is to act as a non-mitochondrial energy buffer, rapidly transferring energy through a reversible reaction catalyzed by the, by the creatine kinase enzyme. Now, short-term creatine monohydrate supplementation has been widely used to improve performance in high-intensity and short-term efforts, for example, in cycling and other exercises. Since creatine supplementation can significantly increase phosphoryl creatine intramuscular stores, it, is shown, it has been shown to improve the energy supply from the phosphagen system. Creatine is present in our brain, and it is important for the energy production in our brain as well. Rochelle in the journal Nutrients last year reviews this. Clinical trials have shown that supplementing with creatine can indeed increase creatine in the brain of humans, and might influence measures of cognition, energy, as well as symptoms of depression. Creatine monohydrate powder has been the most extensively studied and commonly used form of creatine in dietary supplements since the early 1990s. Creatine monohydrate was used in early studies to assess bioavailability, to determine proper dosages, and to assess the impact of oral ingestion of creatine on blood creatine and intramuscular creatine stores as well. It is well established that around 99% of orally ingested creatine monohydrate is either taken up by the tissues in the body or excreted in the urine as creatine through normal digestion. Short-term loading with creatine monohydrate, so consuming 5 grams 4 times daily for 5 to 7 days, has been reported to increase intramuscular creatine stores by 20 to 40% and can increase exercise performance capacity by 5 to 10%. Creatine monohydrate supplementation during training, so 5 to 25 grams a day for 4 to 12 weeks, has been reported to promote gains in muscle mass, strength, and exercise capacity. A number of different forms of creatine, such as creatine salts, complex with other nutrients or dipeptides, have been marketed as more effective sources of creatine than creatine monohydrate. However, I've yet to see any peer-reviewed published papers showing that the ingestion of equal amounts of creatine salts or other forms of creatine, that they're any better than creatine monohydrate. So it is possible that creatine, because of its capability to produce energy, because of its capability to enhance creatine in the brain, might have the capacity to enhance energy production as well as sustained focus. I wish more research would come out on it, and I think in the near future we will see some, and I will make sure to update you if I see that. Now let's talk about some whole foods. How about blueberries? I talk about the effects of blueberries on cognition back in episode 120. Barfoot in the European Journal of Nutrition in 2019 recruited 54 children aged 7 to 10 years old to see if a drink rich in blueberries could improve their cognitive performance on tasks. There was also a placebo group where the drink looked and tasted similar and had similar composition but did not contain blueberries or its bioactives. Before and two hours after consuming the drink, the children took part in three exams, one about attention, one for auditory learning, and one for reading efficiency. The scientists concluded that the flavonoid-rich blueberry drink, equivalent to 240 grams or equivalent to one and a half cups of fresh blueberries can provide acute cognitive benefits in children. 
as those who consumed the beverage scored better two hours post-drink from memory and attention. For example, they were about 10% faster in their response time and provided 10% better inward recall. How about another study about blueberries? McNamara and the journal Neurobiology of Aging in 2018 recruited 80 older adults with self-reported cognitive decline. There were four groups in the study, blueberries, fish oil, blueberries and fish oil, or placebo. They took in 20 grams of freeze-dried blueberries made into a powder and or 1.6 grams of icosapentaenoic acid and 0.8 grams of docosahexaenoic acid for the fish oil capsules. They were followed for 24 weeks to see if any of these interventions improved their cognition. The fish oil and blueberries alone groups reported fewer cognitive symptoms, and the blueberry group showed improved memory discrimination, indicating that supplementation improved some measures of cognition. Now let's talk mechanism. Because if eating blueberries every day might have benefit on our blood vessel health and brain functioning and cognition, how is that possible? Well, some speculate that it is due to the antioxidant capacity of blueberries. For example, Kay and Holub in the British Journal of Nutrition in 2002 aimed to see if eating blueberries altered the antioxidant status of patients' blood. Eight middle-aged men were recruited for this study. The subjects consumed a high-fat meal and a control supplement that served as the placebo group. Then one week later, they ate the same high-fat meal supplemented with 100 grams of freeze-dried wild blueberry powder. Before and after intake samples were taken, blood samples were taken, and they were assessed for antioxidant status using the oxygen radical absorbance capacity assay and the total antioxidant status assay. What did the scientists find? Well, one hour and four hours post-consumption of the blueberry drink, antioxidant status increased by 4.5 to 16% depending on the assay used. So it appears that consuming freeze-dried blueberries did improve antioxidant status, which thus might reduce oxidative stress within the body and the associated risk of chronic disease. Now, side note, the reason why it was consumed with a high-fat meal is it, it is because believed that the polyphenols might be better absorbed when fat is consumed alongside. Now, how about another nutrient or food? Let's talk about one of my favorite micronutrients, magnesium. Back in episode 122, I go into the details. Magnesium is incredibly important as it plays a significant role in tons of pathways and reactions in our body. For example, magnesium is necessary for reactions involving energy production, as magnesium is found in the powerhouse of our cells, the mitochondria, and is necessary to help produce the energy molecule ATP. As a result, it has been observed that in individuals that are deficient with magnesium, they may have very low energy levels and experience fatigue. Magnesium is also pivotal in our muscles being able to contract, for our nerves to be able to function, to help control our blood glucose levels and our blood pressure. It is important in how our heart contracts. Now calcium enters into our cells to activate many cellular processes. If we are deficient in magnesium, it is incredibly possible that our ability to focus and have sustained attention is dramatically reduced. Now, the paper that I really love that talks about magnesium in the context of mental health and cognition was written by Pickering in the journal Nutrients in 2020. Now, they wrote a review on how stress, psychological or physical, may induce magnesium loss, and magnesium deficiency may make it harder for our body to cope with stress. It's quite the vicious cycle, as stress can cause magnesium depletion, magnesium depletion may cause stress. Some symptoms of magnesium deficiency include irritability, nervousness, lack of energy, difficulty concentrating, and weakness. You can imagine how these feelings would make it more difficult to handle stressful situations. If we don't have the energy, the patience, or the calm, or the attention or focus to deal with our task at hand, how frustrating, how mentally exhausting that can be. So let's say we want to aim to get more magnesium in our diet. Let's talk food sources. What are some high sources? Dark chocolate, for example, one ounce of dark chocolate can give 64 milligrams or 16% of our recommended dietary intake. One whole avocado gives 58 milligrams or 15% of our required intake. Nuts such as almonds, cashews, and Brazil nuts. One ounce of almonds, for example, gives 20% the requirement. 
Legumes like lentils, chickpeas, and beans are a good source. For example, one cup of cooked black beans gives 30% the requirement. Seeds like pumpkin seeds, flax seed, and chia seeds are great sources. One ounce of pumpkin seeds gives 37% the requirement. One cup of cooked spinach gives 39%. Bananas, whole grains, fatty fish like salmon, and leafy greens are all great sources. So let me give an example of what we could eat in one day to reach our goal for magnesium. If we ate one ounce of pumpkin seeds, one ounce of dark chocolate, one cup of cooked spinach, and a banana, then that would have us reach our goal for magnesium. But that may not be achievable for all, and the reality is the grand majority of us are not consuming enough magnesium every day. So let's talk supplements. A few studies showed that soluble preparations are generally better absorbed, such as magnesium aspartate, magnesium citrate, lactate, and chloride have superior bioavailability compared to magnesium oxide and magnesium sulfate. Now, side effect of magnesium supplementation can be diarrhea and stomach upset. It is suggested to maintain magnesium from the diet from foods because these foods rich in magnesium also have other healthful nutrients, especially potassium, which should be in balance with magnesium. I've seen some electrolyte powders to be mixed in water that can contain both potassium and magnesium, and these might be beneficial for some. But as always, please seek the advice of your physician and dietitian. As for example, someone with kidney insufficiency or kidney failure need to be very careful with limiting their potassium intake. If we take in too much supplemental magnesium, it can cause stomach upset, as I, as I said. Now, the tolerable upper intake level or the level that is suggested that we do not exceed for supplements of magnesium is 350 milligrams. How about some other nutrients in regard to attention and focus? The B vitamins in general are also implicated in our energy metabolism and our ability for sustained attention. I have many episodes on the B vitamins in my vitamin series, such as episode 30, 35, 38, 44, 47, episode 60, episode 67. All of those feature one specific B vitamin. So perhaps take note of how much of the B vitamins we are getting in our diet by entering in our typical day's food into a nutrient calculator. And I like the website nutritiondata.self.com because it gives us a breakdown of all the nutrients in the food, including the B vitamins. And I'll link that website in the description box if you want to try it out. So considering our intake of the B vitamins is also really important to consider in the context of our mental performance and our ability to have sustained attention. The last nutrient I'm going to talk about is medium chain triglycerides. Now these include primarily the carbon-8 and carbon-10 fatty acids. These are of interest in cognition because medium chain triglycerides are rapidly converted to ketones by our liver and ketones supply a secondary fuel source to glucose for our brain. So if we can supply an additional and different energy source to our brain, it may very well enhance our executive functioning, our attention, our focus, and our productivity. Medium chain triglycerides have been studied in individuals with mild cognitive impairment or the early stages of dementia and Alzheimer's. A review by Abgerinos in 2020 in the journal Aging Research Reviews pulled together 12 clinical trials in a meta-analysis and determined that medium chain triglycerides did indeed improve many measures of cognition in different tests and tasks of attention and decision-making in patients with mild cognitive impairment. The most common daily dose of medium chain triglycerides was 20 grams per day. Now, one of the side effects of medium chain triglyceride intake is also diarrhea, so please do keep this in mind. Now, medium chain triglycerides can be purchased in their isolated pure form, and coconut oil does contain some medium chain triglycerides, but only about 15 to 20% of the fatty acids in coconut oil are considered true medium chain triglycerides, which is C8 and C10. Now the C12 fatty acid lauric acid doesn't appear to be as ketogenic and doesn't get converted into ketones as readily or as efficiently as the carbon-8 and carbon-10 fatty acids. So that is why many products isolate carbon-8 and carbon-10 from coconut oil. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army. I hope that this episode brought some new insightful information to you. I know it was highly requested and I tried my best to give an in-depth review of all of the ideas that I could come up with. 
Now let me break it down for you again very simply and quickly here. If we want to increase our attention control and our ability for sustained attention, we can. Meditate at least three times per week for 45 minutes a day. Do moderate varying intensity exercise during or before our work task. We can listen to our preferred music for low demanding tasks to reduce our mind from wandering. For our office space, we, consider, we can consider our air quality using indoor plants or an air purifier. We can consider our comfort and consider a small space like facing the corner of a room or creating an enclosed cubicle or even a fort around us to reduce visual outside distractions. We can add indoor plants to help with our air quality and our cognitive performance. When we feel mentally exhausted, to reset our mind, we can consider going outside and looking at a far away distant view that is fascinating to us. Like looking at the clouds, looking across the river, looking at the ocean, the mountains, a field, etc. The nutritional considerations to help our brain function well, to make sure that our brain has the energy it needs to have sustained focus, includes considering our hydration status and drinking enough water, consuming antioxidant-rich foods like blueberries, consuming sources of magnesium, which is really hard to do but really important for our mental functioning, and some food sources include pumpkin seeds and green leafy vegetables. We can also consider B vitamins and nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, or NAD, which, for example, we can find in nutritional yeast. We can consider creatine from supplements or found in animal meats and medium-chain triglycerides from supplements or coconut oil. Please also do regulate caution or show caution when purchasing supplements as they are not as tightly regulated as foods. There are many studies that have analyzed the content of supplements and have shown there to be a different amount in the supplement than what is on the label. So I would suggest that if we purchase a supplement to choose one from a reputable brand with third-party testing verification, which is ideal. So that means a third party has come and analyzed the supplement and verified that what is on the label is the same as what's in the bottle. I always recommend getting our nutrients from our food because these foods will also contain other healthy nutrients that can benefit our health. So just keep that in mind. So thank you for tuning in. I hope that this episode was insightful and useful for all of you. If I come across any new data on attention control, I will be sure to do an update episode. Please consider supporting the show by buying me a coffee to say thank you for the episode. You can do so via Patreon, Venmo, and the Buy Me a Coffee link in the description box. If you want to see some of the papers or studies that I cite in each episode, then make sure to follow me on social media. And if you have a choice of social media platforms, I'm most active on Instagram. My handles are in the description box to this show. I hope that you all have an awesome day, and I look forward to meeting you all back here for another episode in two weeks' time. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.